so on. Dunning Kruger, it's all there's some humorous sides to it. This is this is the one I love to quote the most. Eighty-five percent of drivers on the road believe that their driving skills are above average. And that generally causes nerds to start giggling furiously because 85% of people cannot be above average. That is impossible. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning again, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McLord. We, we are here to help inform you on the world of finance, to detangle uh, really tangly messes of information out there on the economy and talk about what might be coming, hopefully, in the future. Uh, looks like we're into good news for the future. Uh, I wanted to jump right in, if you're okay with this, by talking about what's happening um, with the power grid issue from the great freeze of 2021. Go for it. There was a Senate bill that passed pretty quickly in the Texas legislature talking about resetting the prices that were set by uh, the uh by ERCOT. They're the, they're the organization that sets prices in disaster times uh, for the electricity. And they accidentally left the prices on at the top level for too long, 33 hours too long, they, and according to their own testimony to the Senate. So we had a bill go through the Senate and it hit a wall in the House. It does not look like it's going to go forward. It does not look like there's going to be a law passed in the Texas legislature that will have any changes to how electricity was charged. That doesn't sound like good news for a lot of companies that were horribly hit by this and quite a few customers that were hit by it uh, from, from the bill standpoint of the bill being so, so big. Uh, some of the electrical providers had bills for their power that they weren't producing bills to them. They had to, they had to find somewhere to buy power to replace what they had on the, on the grid. And some of those bills were for four years of profit and it took less or, or four years of earnings and it took less than a week to get there. Um, so there's bankruptcies that have already been filed. This is a bad situation. So what's the solution? And last week we had some conversation about that. We covered the subject in some more detail. The first real actual solution that I have seen with some possibility of actually working comes from Warren Buffett. Have you followed this at all? I have. And the Houston, I guess the Houston Chronicle is poo-pooing his uh, desire to build $8 billion worth of power plants in, in Texas. Yeah. So Warren, I'm, I'm looking at the Texas Tribune. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is talking about building 10 power plants in Texas that most of the time are going to be turned off. They only get turned on when the grid is suffering. It is pure reserve, nothing else. And there's a lot of people that look at that and say, why do we have all this expense to do this thing? It's the same reason why you have reserve in your bank account. So you don't go into debt or hurt yourself when an emergency arises. And his proposal or their proposal to the legislature is a flat $3 a month bill to all electric customers in Texas that goes towards the the manufacturing of these plants and the upkeep of the plants once they're turned on they're going to charge electricity at the normal rates but while they're turned off this has been one of the huge pieces that's been lacking from the puzzle of the of the texas power grid is that it's an on-demand system and it worked great for the last 10 years we had a hiccup 10 years ago we thought ah we got that covered we weren't prepared for a level of event as w what occurred in February, both at the, the amount of cold, we didn't winterize well, nor were we prepared 
to keep power flowing into the system at the right rate. Our system nearly had a a catastrophic failure. It was in what's up? We were literally minutes, about four and a half minutes away from a total shutdown at one point, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. And that four minute, and just to give some, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> I'm an economist. And the engineering side of this and the economic side of this are two different areas. What I do know is something about how electricity works, not at the, not at the level of engineering, obviously, but the more power you have in a system, the more you pump electricity out there, the higher the frequency wave of that electricity. When you hear people say, is that 110 volt? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something called hertz. And when you get above 60 hertz or below 60 hertz, it can damage electronics and anything that's plugged into it that's designed to run on something different. It's like trying to plug, like make up your own conversion system to plug into a European wall. You're going to blow out your laptop. It will destroy the laptop. So there's trips on the system that say when there's not enough power to run at 60 hertz, turn off. And when there's too much power to run above 60 hertz, Turn off. It's like these big circuit breakers at the electric electricity providing plant. And they will shut down the generators if they're getting above 60 or below. We were right up close to that. When those things shut off, they shut off kind of all across the grid. And getting them to come back on without shutting off because the frequency's not right again takes a long time. We might still be without power in Texas right now if we had had that catastrophic failure. And that is, that's not hyperbole. That is the real situation. We were four minutes away from that happening before there were mandatory blackouts across the area. Now, those mandatory blackouts didn't work very well because a lot of the power generators were already blacked out except for their highest uh, uh, need items like hospital circuits and uh, things that you absolutely need to leave turned on. And we had events where hospital circuits got cut as well. So what happened? What caused all this is uh, natural gas was frozen in the pipes. There's, there's water vapor in there with it and other particulates that solidify when it gets cold. There was another big aspect to this in that there was a we've had a lot of natural gas suppliers come online in the last few years since 2011 when a report was published on this. And a lot of those natural natural gas suppliers didn't realize they had to fill out a three page form with their local electric supplier and with 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 the, the power company and the, the transmission companies saying that we're vital. Why, why are the why would a natural gas supplier be vital that's got a hole in the ground and there's natural gas coming out of it because well, it's running on electricity <laughs> it has to and it's running on electricity if they don't list themselves at a as a request to be a vital source of uh, so the power doesn't get turned off when rolling blackouts start then the power company shuts down power to the people who are providing the power company with natural gas upstream. And they didn't know that. They just know that here's this block of, uh, of addresses that we can shut down, this block of meters that we can shut down when we have too much power demand. And th these ones are actually drawing a lot right now. It's like they're in overdrive because they were pumping extra gas to feed to the power grid. And so once they started shutting down the, the natural gas suppliers, two things happen. It's kind of like if you shut off your water when the temperature is really, really cold and you don't have good insulation on your pipes, the water freezes. So the gas started freezing in the lines and it took a long time to start. You can't just turn the power back on and it starts back up again at that point. And you have to thaw the pipes. And so just, we had to, we were just totally, we were just unprepared for this thing. There was no, well, they could have done what we did, you know, under the sink, we opened uh, our cabinets under the sink and that allowed the warm air around our pipes. And then when it got really cold, we just took our hair dryer and blew it on the, why didn't the natural gas companies do that for their pipes? Well, hair dryer electricity, I think. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that could be a problem.
And it just amounts to the fact that we don't, you know, the Texas Reliability. Yeah, go ahead. You say it. Electric Reliability Council did not do their job. It's really what it boiled down to. I don't know. I haven't investigated it, and I know that the investigations are still ongoing. But All of the, the board line, members have resigned at this point. That says something. The bottom line to it was these were political appointees who, in most cases, who gave a lot of money to the party in power in Texas, and they got put in a place where they could get paid to sit on a council that didn't do anything. Yeah. The only time they really do something is when we really, really need them to do it, and they weren't prepared. And they messed and up. It, they, I mean, the, the fact that they left it, the price capped up there by their own admission for 33 hours too long. The reason why they did that, they said, well, we can't, we don't know the reason. We don't know why we did that. And the, that means they forgot to turn it back down. Th that is the issue there. <laughs> they forgot to do it. And one of the things that has happened in Texas, and it's a matter of uh, political principle, is we've turned the Texas power generation business over to private enterprise, which sounds on one side sounds very, very good. And, and it's got uh, some fantastic, fantastic potential. And the end result though, wasn't too pleasant. Uh, a lot of surveys have come out since then that show the average Texan, the average power user in Texas at the retail level pays significantly more per kilowatt hour than they do across the rest of the country. Right. That's from the wall street journal. We need to take a look at that. The other thing is, in the rest of the country, there is a mandate from the various states that power generation capacity needs to be 15% more than a worst-case scenario, just in case you have some power plants go down or like we had a nuclear plant that uh, the water supply was in was freezing up. They couldn't. It was kind of funny. They couldn't get electricity to pump water because the electric grid was shutting down. And because they couldn't get electricity to pump water from the water supply that they needed for the nuclear power plant, the nuclear power plant automatically shut down because the water supply was limited. It, we just were totally unprepared for this. The Reliability Council did a terrible job. And, and their, their purpose is in their name. Their job is to make the grid reliable. And Texas, for very good reason, has been proud of its own power grid. I mean, it's there's... No place else in the country where a state has its own power grid. There are three major grids, and one of them is Texas. And that, that is an accomplishment. We're energy independent. We are Texas. We need it to be reliable so that we don't shut down when winter hits. And something I learned from watching a series on HBO is that winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's important is private enterprise on its own do not is not going is going to operate for maximum profit. That's just what they do. No private enterprise organization is going to voluntarily say we need to have 15% extra power generation capacity that we probably will never use or maybe use once every 40 years, but it's a vital service and we need it. Right. How do they explain that as, as to their shareholders? How do they say, hey, I know we just spent $3 billion on this plant that we're not using, but it's okay. We're, we're just thinking ahead. They could explain it, but that's not how most of their shareholders are looking. They're saying, why did you just have this massive, nobody else is doing that. Why did you do that? Well, Warren Buffett can explain it. He can come out and say, I'm going to do this. And people go, oh, there must be something smart happening here. Uh, energy I, companies are not generally making decisions strategically. They tend to overpump and underpump and overpump and underpump. And that's why we have the volatility in the energy sector. And it's an important thing that if you have a large enough market, in many cases, it's self-adjusting. But when you have a smaller market in Texas, it doesn't sound like a smaller market, but it is. And you have a lot of competing companies in Texas that are that are supplying electricity. The issue is to get the price as low as possible to produce and raise the price as high as possible for the end user. That right. way you make profits. Yeah, and, and here's the bottom line. When you have 12 companies competing for one customer and one of those companies says, I'm going to tack on a little bit of extra price to your electric bill so that we can 
build a plant that's never been needed before in Texas, but it might be at some point in the future, I think most Texans at that point would have said, no, I'm going for the one that doesn't have that stupid extra charge on it. And that's what we did. And that's where, if you want to call it socialism, you can call it socialism, but that's where a government regulator has an advantage because they can. the company says we have to have 15% extra capacity because the regulator said we had to have 15% extra capacity. And when you go to elect those regulators, or those regulators wind up being subject to public review. Everybody wants the regulators to say have extra capacity and be extra safe, but they want the companies to be extra profitable. Yeah, and I think that right there, right now, and this is the thing, I think a fundamental aspect of the market that you know, we're talking about electricity, but it's everywhere. People don't tend to prepare for emergencies that haven't happened in their lifetime. And we've never had the entire state freeze. We had, we had records from one side of the state to the other, from the top to the bottom, the, from the left to the right, record cold temperatures across the state that lasted for a week. And this is, this is, we tend to prepare for the last war. You know, we talk about that in the military. You talk about the, you know, when an economic collapse happens, we say, how do we keep this from doing it again? People don't tend to get out ahead and say, what are all the things that might cause this to fail and let's fix it? Because that's expensive to try to solve every problem that might but has never happened. So it's not like I want to put a huge amount of blame on the electric companies here. I don't. I do think that ERCOT, their job is reliability, and they should have been focused in on saying, how do we compensate people that have reserve generation capacity that's not being used right now? Because that's expensive for those companies. And the only way to do that is to have some kind of a tax system to do it. And that's exactly what Warren Buffett is saying here. Charge everybody a flat $3 on their bill, and we'll use that to maintain reserves that may never get used. Makes sense. That's exactly it. What happens is there's surcharges they can put on the bills. You don't have to pay them. And it's not a tax per se. It's you, Your telephone bill has surcharges on it to get telephones to people who otherwise couldn't get telephones. And that's mandated by the state legislature. And the state legislature could easily mandate a surcharge on everybody's electric bill to make sure we have adequate reserves. The other thing is the reliability council wasn't doing its job as a reliability council by doing the same thing that the federal reserve does with the banks, which is do a stress test, do a simulation and say, what happens if we get this kind of weather? By the way, we had this near, it wouldn't, didn't last as long. We had this happen back in 1982. I remember that. We had it in 2011 to a lesser degree. And there are plenty of studies out there. It's just that nobody, I mean, literally nobody at the state level took a look at this and says, we need to do a, a, a check. We need to do a stress check on the electric system in the state of Texas, see what would happen if this happened again. It just simply wasn't. The Reliability Council wasn't focused on reliability. Well, I have to, though, say that my memory of 1982, when the last time we had a, a really big freeze like that, um, it was very different, though. I don't remember any problem with the power. I just remember a lot of snowballs and snowmen and rolling. And I, I was a child at the time, though. So I, I thought of it as a wonderful event, not as one with problems. The interesting reason that we did not have a crisis at that point. The Texas state power grid was still under pretty tight regulation. TXU provided the power in the state of Texas. It was a monopoly. It was regulated at the state level. And it was required to have a 15% reserve. It was required to winterize and prepare for this type of activity because it was heavily regulated by the state. When we deregulated, we deregulation in, in essence is generally a somewhat of a good idea, but you have to recognize that to, in a deregulation, you lose control of a worst case scenario. And that's where things went bad. Now, now having we, we've done some talking up and some trash talking about the power grid in Texas. We are number 23 in the nation for residential prices. That's not spectacular. That means that we are running just below average for the rest of the country. But we're third 
for commercial and industrial prices. And that's, that's possible on the residential side too. If, if we approach it, this is a market-based system. Let's not yank it apart. You know, the whole concept of deregulation, we haven't finished it yet. There's parts of it that need to be stayed regulated or, or they won't work. And there's parts that won't. And that's going to be the same when you're talking about the marketplace for anything. When you're talking about the stock market or, uh, or the electricity market, you have to have regulations in place to make sure that we have an efficiently run, free-flowing system that's not impeded by outside forces. And that's what the regulators do in the economy for, and in the market. You know, when I say outside forces, if somebody comes in and hacks the system, gets somehow into a, a bank's accounts or into uh, the, uh, some trading platform's accounts, that happens. It happens very rarely because the security is a lot better there than even the, the military typically uses. But it happens. And when it does, people are made whole because there's extra expenses of having those accounts, even though it's a free market system, to provide safety from outside theft or outside influence, or in this case, an outside winter storm. So building that in, building the emergency protocols into place is the that's that is the purview of government that's what they're for i i it's difficult when government requires multi-page forms and they're not clear to the people who are setting up their infrastructure that they have these multi-page forms that have to be signed in by certain people and delivered to certain people so that they can provide stuff to the electric company because I think that the electric company would go to all of its sources of natural gas and say, hey, let's make sure that you your meter is on our list, not leave it up to them to say, hey, don't shut me off when the power comes on. Yeah, but the, the electric company is trying to make a profit and it is not their job, and this was their argument, that it's not their job to hire extra people to tell people that they need to fill out a three-page form, which it was, wasn't a particularly difficult form, I understand to say we are a vital industry and we should not have power shut off if in a worst case scenario. Uh, the hospitals routinely did it, but like I said, what we had is a lot of new natural gas suppliers that came online since 2011 when the study came out and when the announcements were put out there. And right, it's just, and that's where you need, again, that's where you need oversight. I believe in deregulation up to a point. There is a balance between state control and individual control. And if you go all the way to one extreme, you have a disaster. And if you go all the way to the other extreme, you tend to have a disaster. There's a balance in there somewhere. That's why we have a Texas State Railroad Commission. By the way, the Railroad Commission could have handled this, but that wasn't their responsibility. It was ERCOT's responsibility, but they said we're not, ERCOT was saying we're not responsible for natural gas. The Railroad Commission is responsible for natural gas. And the Railroad Commission was saying, no, we're not responsible for electricity. The ERCOT is responsible for electricity. It's one. Of the, it's kind of like the 9-11 issue. We had several intelligence agencies that had spotted the potential for a 9-11 disaster, but they weren't talking to each other. They said that's somebody else's responsibility. Very specifically, we had a lot of intelligence agencies that normally work in overseas environments who recognized that there was a potential for a 9-11 to occur, something similar to 9-11 to occur, but they were not allowed to deal in domestic terror events. They were only allowed to deal in what happens overseas. So they couldn't do any work on domestic terror events. They said that's off limits. The FBI, which had the authority to make act to take action on it, wasn't didn't have access to the foreign intelligence that they needed to have. And that's why we now have a director of we have a director of national intelligence, DNI, which, by the way, was the original role of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, was to coordinate everybody's intelligence. And now we have another layer of bureaucracy that coordinates the intelligence from the Central Intelligence Agency along with everybody else, whether or not it work. Well, the good news is we've had a disaster. It wasn't a total disaster. And we're probably going to react to it and fix it. All right. Well, we have a question hanging out here. Thank you, John. Thank you again. Uh, he gives a first a 
pretty fat, a fantastic compliment to us. Thank you. We appreciate that. Um, he said, PwC does a great job in trying to educate the public on finance, economics, and investing to those who choose to listen. Which country has the most literate population on these to- topics? And how do you measure that? And that's a great question. Um, there are a lot of places that try to measure it. Standard & Poor's has a uh, Standard & Poor's has a global financial literacy survey that they put out. One of the problems that comes with this: How do you define financial literacy? Are you talking about balancing a checkbook? Do you even have a checkbook, or is it all debit cards at this point? Um, so the standards on what financial literacy have changed over the years. But according to their survey, uh, the the top country in the world for financial literacy is Australia, followed by Canada, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Israel, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. Uh, they each have countries where 65% of their adult population are considered financially literate. Um where the rest of the world does not, and the United States falls way down that list. Um, that is just one of the issues. We're in the, uh, uh, I mean, it's good, but it's not as good as some of those in, others in, in Europe and Australia. Canada's way ahead of us. Uh, but we're better than Spain. We're better than France. So how's that? Um, There's a reason for that. What's the reason? Uh, for instance, Denmark is way up there, and I'm familiar with their education system, having looked into it. It's a mandatory course in Denmark, in, in high school, for example, to take basic financial literacy, to understand compound interest and basically how to manage your the equivalent of a 401k, what to look for in the way. Basically, the stuff that we talk about and we try to educate our clients on is taught in the school systems as a critical uh, as a critical subject, it isn't a critical subject in the United States. As a matter of fact, you could make it all the way through high school learning next to nothing about personal finance, and you learn nothing about modern portfolio theory and how to manage your 401k. And people generally have no clue how to do that. And then the education is generally provided by this, the place that's ser- selling you advertisement or selling you uh, an investment product. Here's all you need to know about fill in the blank. Well, where'd that come from? It came from the place that sold it to me. There, there might be a conflict of interest there in the educational platform you choose. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the things we've noticed over the years is this 403B programs, the retirement programs that the, the teachers use, voluntary programs that teachers use are generally some of the worst run financial investment programs I've ever seen across the board. They have the highest expenses and the some of the worst returns and some of the worst setups I've ever seen. 401ks are far more efficient than a 403b, not because they're inherently different, but because the 403b isn't regulated by the SEC. It's all on the Labor Department, or sometimes team. sometimes at the state level. So the 403b in Texas is a state regulated thing. It wouldn't. Fo- it doesn't follow the regulations that that ERISA passed, which is the federal law governing governing retirement plans. Um, so it's just kind of weird. The teachers do not have an infant. They have a guaranteed retirement system. Yeah. And as a result, they don't have an impetus to learn or to teach something that's not that critical to them. Yeah, they use a 403B, but again, the 403Bs are generated by salespeople and the salespeople are looking for the highest profit for the salesperson. That's where it's a form of deregulation. Yeah. I really wish that 403Bs could be regulated by the SEC under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, like the other things were. Right, And a lot of 403Bs are, but the state ones for, like, teachers are not. Our our financial literacy in the United States basically stinks. It's just less stinky than a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, It's just stinky. So. for an advanced country, we're kind of behind the power curve. Right. We need to get this as part of our education system. Why we do this radio program really is that we hire from this community. We do business in this community. We do business all over the country as well, but this is where we reside. 
So our local radio program, our national podcast, we're trying to get some of the terminology, some of the intense complexity out there. There's in behavioral finance, behavioral psychology as well. There's a, a, a concept, a bias called Dunning-Kruger, where people that know nothing about a subject that get a little bit of knowledge about it believe that they understand the subject. And we're all familiar with this because we've all done it. I got on Google and I spent an hour and a half researching this thing that I want to buy and I'm sure it's the best one out there. Then it breaks when you get it and you realize what broke and you start doing research. Oh, that's the thing that always breaks that way. So on. Dunning-Kruger, it's all, there's some humorous sides to it. This is, this is the one I love to quote the most. 85% of drivers on the road believe that their driving skills are above average. And that generally causes nerds to start giggling furiously because 85% of people cannot be above average. That is impossible. That's Dunning-Kruger. Uh, people are asked, you know, people that people play baseball as they're growing up. Not a lot of people play chess. So there's a questionnaire that went out and asked a lot of people, hey, have you ever played chess? And the people that said yes, they kind of pulled them out of the poll and uh, they didn't know that when they were filling out the form. And then they're asked things like, uh, if you had practiced every day after school growing up and you'd spent a lot of time on it, do you think you could have gotten to play in the minor leagues of baseball? And the vast majority of people said emphatically no. Just they didn't have what it took to in that skill set to practice hard enough to get up there. They saw people that were a lot better at them, and then those people go up against people that were even better than them. They said no. Well, these same people are asked, you know, and these were people that were asked earlier what their knowledge of chess was, and it's minimal knowledge of chess. How likely they would be if they were able to spend after school or even now beginning a two-hour-a-day practice on chess if in the next two years they could perform at the master level? And the vast majority of them said yes because they didn't know the massive complexities that take place in learning chess are the same kinds of massive complexities that takes place in learning to be the best at baseball. It's muscular and, and, and brain versus almost all brain in the chess side, but it's the same or more level of difficulty. People don't know what they don't know. And this kind of fits in. Philip just sent us an email and I had no idea this is where his question was until I just looked. He says he's enjoying the show today. Um, and his favorite area of project management is risk management. Ironically, it's the area that business is uh, spend the least amount of money on. And we've just learned it's one of the most important to future success when faced with adversity. Seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? It always seems like a no-brainer after a disaster. Well, they should have known to, that's hindsight. None of us were talking about this in January. I and mean, we talked about infrastructure and modernizing the grid. We did, but we didn't say this is absolutely vital. We must do it today or the whole grid's going to go down. Uh, so his question is, and I'm, I'm assuming the energy project he's talking about is the Warren Buffett one. What are the known knowns and the unknown unknowns of the project? Well, the first off is the unknown unknowns are unknown. We don't know. And by definition, I always assume that they're the majority of the unknowns. And the known unknowns are going to be like, we don't know when the temperature will come back down to that level. Do we know it will at some point? Yes, we could assume that at this point that yes, the temperature will get low again in the future. When? Well, that's an unknown, but it's a known unknown. What can we do about this? Let's weatherize. That means that we're going to have to spend some money because that wasn't part of the rate that was advertised to any of us when we signed up for whatever electric company that we're with. Oh, they're raising the rates. Now there's a flat fee on here too. What's going on here? It needs to be, if it's something that protects the system, it needs to be universal. And this is something you maybe even could jump in on this. Let me ask you this question. Who pays for FDIC insurance? The, share, the shareholders and the uh, people who deposit money to the banks. 
Right. So the reason why we put the money in the bank in a lot of cases is because it's safe. And we get upset when it's not paying us a lot of money. But the reality is part of the reason why it's not paying us a lot of money is the expense of making sure that it's there if the institution it's in fails or if there's a massive economic situation. There's an extra expense to being safety-oriented. A car would be less expensive without airbags and without seatbelts and without shatterproof windshields. It would be. It was cheaper to make them that way. But we've all agreed, no, I think we need those kind of universally across the board. Let's make that the standard going forward. We didn't necessarily all agree. The regulators, the Congress passed the Highway National Highway Safety Bill, and the regulators made up some rules. And so when the car company says we have to charge you more because of this, 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 and this, they can blame it on the federal government. You can not like it or like it, but still it's there. And it's a so fair it's, playing field. It's universal. All the car companies have to do it. We need to do the same thing across the board in a lot of areas. You know, we're, we're focused right now on winterizing, on being prepared for a particularly cold winter. What happens if you get a particularly hot summer? They were rolling blackouts and brownouts last year across the state in the summertime. In Texas, where it's normal that it gets hot. But if we get an unusually hot summer and it stays hot for a longer period of time than normal, which is just as likely as it stayed cold for a longer period of time than normal, we probably are not prepared for that. As a matter of fact, I can say without qualification, we're not prepared for that. Right. So th there are things that are known and unknown. The big thing is that the project is being done at a little, little level. This is one of the, the strengths of the United States economy is that when we have a project that's being done with lots of companies competing, after we've been through some catastrophic events, we find the ones that are actually the ones we want to be with. This is the same thing that happened in the auto industry. In the 1920s, there were hundreds of American automobile manufacturing companies, hundreds of them. Now there are three, but they're not the same three that they were 15 years ago because uh, Chrysler's are, you know, we, we, we've, there's Italian companies involved now. What's Fiat doing in what? Uh, General Motors. And you almost might say four. General Motors, Ford. What are the new ones? Toyota and Tesla. Toyota, I hear the shock. It's majority American owned at this point. It's traded on the U.S. stock exchange and the majority of ownership of Toyota is American. Odds are if you buy a Toyota in the United States, it was made in the United States. Odds are if you buy a General Motors product in the United States, you have about a coin flip as to whether it was made in the United States. Same with the Ford. I have an American company Ford sitting out in my driveway right now that was made in Canada. It says so right inside the door. You may not like globalization, but it's reality. Well, if you don't like, you don't, if you like the standard of living you have and the low price we have when we go to buy things, then you like globalization whether you know it or not. Right. And, well, we have lots more to talk on this subject. We're running out of time, and we got to play some commercials. Uh, Cooper, by the way, is our engineer back at the studio, and he's an amazing guy. He, he is fantastic. We, we appreciate him a lot, and he doesn't get a lot of credit. It's kind of like the drummer in most bands. Uh, without the drummer, the band doesn't sound right, but nobody knows who the drummer is. Well, Cooper is our guy. We thank you, Cooper. And we'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, we, we continued a conversation during the break. Had a good time waxing eloquent about how the inefficiency in the supply chain only happened when we had slack in it when we had a catastrophic event that caused us to say we're not so comfortable with this anymore it's the same thing that's going on with the power grid if you get very 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 efficient and you have no reserves because you're lean and mean and you're delivering just in time you're creating something and delivering it just in time you don't have any excess capacity you're very efficient the problem occurs that things happen I started to say something else happens, but it happens. <laughs> you can't say that on the radio. Yes. Yeah. And so the result of, of it happening 
is that you need to have a backup capacity, which was not available in the electric system in Texas, and is basically gradually been whittled away across the globe in the just-in-time delivery. We're operating in max capacity everywhere. That's very efficient, but it doesn't work when there's a crisis or when something happens like a ship blocks the Suez Canal. And this is something, if you go back a little over a year to what we were talking about in 2019, about we were due for an upset because there's a figure we talk about a lot and it's called capacity utilization. It's specifically focused on industrial production and so on. But we apply that same concept to our roadways and obviously to another specific item now, the, the, the supply chain. And there was a little bit of slack in the supply chain before. There really was. But we were getting to the edge of that slack when the pandemic hit. Then there was a lot of slack in the supply chain because everything stopped. Then coming back up, we're seeing the limitations that we didn't consider limitations before. And this, we have a technology that we can use to fix it. And that technology is automation and that technology is in its infancy, but we can all pretty well guess where it's going. Anybody that's listening to us probably watched Star Trek The Next Generation. And it doesn't seem that far-fetched to have a computer that can walk around as an Android now. Uh, if you think back to what else was on Star Trek, the ability to say to a computer when you walked into your room to play Mozart, well, I do that every day. I have a computer that I talk to in my house that plays whatever I want it to. Uh, and I'm not going to say it on the radio or she'll start answering everybody saying, ah, <laughs> they should we remove those names from radio vernacular as well so that people don't constantly trigger their computers. We also have a computer in our house that uh, a robot in our house that goes around and vacuums the floor and talks to itself. Yes. You can't talk to it, but it'll talk to you, tell you what needs to be done. It tells you when it's low on power or when it's trying to find its ports. And I'll tell you also, if you go to pick it up, it tells you to put it, put it down, put, put the, put the vacuum down or put the, put the robot down and, and punch the go button again. It'll tell you, if you pick it up, it'll tell you to put it down. And, this is infancy. This is the very, very beginning. The amount of productivity jump that we expect to see out of this is unmeasurable. It is We've never been at a place with this much potential productivity gains. That's another thing. I was going to talk about that at some length, but we only have a little, little time left. American manufacturing during the COVID crisis has invested a lot of money in innovative, durable goods. Now, what they're talking about in many cases is automation and robotics. They were, we were cruising along before the pandemic with people working and it, basically people may be more expensive than the automated system in the long run, but we got the people here now and who wants to invest the extra money anyway? But now they've started investing the extra money because they realized that a lot of people got sick and a lot of people couldn't show up for work. And as a result, manufacturing in the United States is going is investing a lot, is already investing a lot of money in innovation. And they are picking up on the on the tail end of that. And it, it resurgence in manufacturing in the United States is pretty amazing. But that leads me to another point that I wanted to touch on. I've had, I often get questions about, and we've actually addressed this on the radio program before. Is it good that we are a consumer-oriented society for a consumer-oriented economy? About two-thirds of American GDP comes from people buying things and using them. We call that consuming. China, for example, is large, China, Germany, and a lot of the European countries are very, very, very much focused on exports. They're selling things to other people. They're selling things to us in many cases. And their economies, if you look at them, have not done so well in the recovery from COVID. Why? Well, because if you have, if you're consuming in a nation most of what you make, and we do in the United States, then we have our customers right here at home, and we can control, for instance, with the stimulus programs, we can control to a large degree how much those customers are going to spend. And a matter of fact, I think you're going to see a big surge in spending next month. Uh, we had to drop off last month because of weather primarily. 
but I think when we get March's uh, data in for consumer spending, it's going to be right through the stratosphere. Why? Because we've got stimulus checks out. So that means we can keep manufacturing going. We can keep things going in the United States. If your customer is someplace else, so say our customer was China and China decided to shut down because of COVID, we would be up a stump. There's nothing we can do to cause China to buy more stuff. Matter of fact, we, it's one of the things that the Trump administration was trying to do is get China to buy more things from the United States. And they were, they did some, but it wasn't anything that we did that caused it. It was because of the, the swine flu that hit there and wiped out their, their pork herds. So they're trying to build them back up again. So they're buying record quantities of soybeans from us. But the bottom line to it is we actually are more self-reliant because we don't export as much as other countries do, which is one of the reasons that over the next couple of years, and you can mark this down and see if I'm correct or not, I think it will be, the United States economy growth will probably exceed that of China, and not necessarily in percentage, but certainly in dollars. The GDP growth in the United States over the next couple of years will probably be greater than that of China or any place else in the world. We will lead the world out of the COVID crisis financially. Why? because we have this chaotic system where we buy the stuff we make. We import a lot of materials, we put them together in many cases here, and then we sell it to people in the United States, and that's the end of that. We just use it. And it goes into the landfill in many cases after that, but that's beside, and you might be upset about that. But the bottom line to it is, the fact that our customers are here at home is a tremendous advantage over having customers someplace else. Right. Having having a, a customer base that is part of your industrial base gives us a great deal of independence. Uh, we're the only major, major uh, economy based this way. There are some other pretty big economies that are sort of close. Uh, the UK is sort of close. Uh, but as far as being independent if the rest of the world stopped trading with us we would have to figure out how to manufacture a lot of stuff so that's not to say that we're not dependent on the global economy it is to say that we're less dependent on the global economy than almost anybody else the chinese are dependent on it from the other way around if we stop buying from them they collapse and and that is that's a harsh reality it's something that that is true, though, as we intensify our efforts on bringing the supply chain back to the United States, expect China to act more aggressively in the world because they have to figure out some way of either converting to a pure consumer-based economy or completely changing what they're based on doing, who they sell to. Uh, we went to China because it was a cheap labor force. Well, it's not a cheap labor force anymore. It is an educated labor force. And that's a good reason to, to, to have them manufacture. But if they're stealing intellectual property and our supply chain is too thin and too long, those are good reasons to say, hey, I don't want to do business in China. Well, what's the alternative right now? And the alternative is either an infancy that's too expensive but more money is being spent to bring that price down in robotics here. Or you go to a place like Thailand where you don't have the educated workforce, but you do have a cheap workforce. Well, that means that you're not going to be doing the same level of electronic manufacturing. You're probably going to do some plastic good manufacturing until you train that workforce up. And then you're dependent on them the same way we are as China. So the long term has to be to bring it back home if we want to maintain this independent concept of our economy while being able to purchase things from overseas because French wine is good and uh, Swiss cheese is good and you can go down the list of things that we would like to buy from other places but we don't necessarily want to be dependent on them for. There was my soapbox for a while. We're almost out of time. Do you have a, a wrap-up you want to do before we sign off? Well, I wanted to mention something else. Uh, Canadian Pacific is buying Kansas City Southern. That's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Uh, the two railroad systems, one of them, Canadian Pacific runs all across Canada, runs down to Kansas City and stops. Kansas City Southern, as its name implies, runs from Kansas City South and covers the Midwest and down in well into deep Mexico. Those two 
combining will make a tremendously great gain in efficiency in the Midwest for railroad north and south. We traditionally in the United States have done our commerce east and west. To do this north-south across North America uh, commerce is a big deal. It'll be a change in the way we do business in the United States. And a big thing is the the Board of Canadian Pacific decided to spend $25 billion investing in it. That indicates that they think there will be a big market from Canada running down across the United States Midwest into Mexico in the future, and I haven't agreed with them. And we are out of time. Thank you all for listening. This has been The Personal Wealth Coach. If you would like to talk to us off the air, uh, The Personal Wealth Coach gives fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management. Uh, so you can contact us during the week. We have real live people answering the phone during the weekend. It's voicemail. You can call us locally at 254-947-1111. You can call that same number toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can learn about our podcast there. Sign up for our newsletter. Contact us through the form or email jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational.